And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're going to talk in this hour just about some articles in question two. And then maybe talk either about two or question four this afternoon a little bit. We'll read some articles together and uh, try to figure out what they're saying. But um, So this is really the metaphysics of the Incarnation. Question two is one of the key places in Aquinas' writing. He focuses on what does it mean to say there was a union that took place in the person. So it's presupposing all the arguments we looked at yesterday, Nestorius versus Cyril, can there be a monophysitism? Hmm? Is there one person? Or are there two persons? If there's one person, are, is there one nature? Why is there a distinction of natures? Why is it that you say there's one person and two natures? It's sort of looking, entering into that respectfully as a mystery, but trying to understand it much more deeply metaphysically. And there's a lot of this kind of work in Aquinas. He does a lot of semantic work later on, too, about what does it mean to talk about the being and becoming of Christ semantically in question 16. The logic of the Incarnation, as it were. But anyway, uh, here he's uh, going to articulate a theory of what it means to say the union took place in the person using metaphysics from... Aristotle, among others, as reworked through the medieval in the medieval world. Now, to just explain, give a, an appreciation of what I think he's trying to do here, or what he is doing quite successfully, let's think about the categories. Okay, Aristotle wrote a famous book early on in his life called The Categories, about the the logical divisions of how we predicate being to things, or how we say things, what kinds of genre or, or groups, groupings we place being in. And he famously lists ten uh, categories, although I've expanded them here to eleven because the first one you can really split in two. And the, so it's the substance and all the accidents. Of course, by accidents we don't mean things you can do without. We mean properties that inhere in something. Aristotle's trying to figure out what things are in their wholeness as unities and then what are all their properties and he's coming along and trying to create basic categories distinctions that he thinks correspond to real distinctions in the things themselves so for example realities around us ourselves included all have are substantial we are I am a different reality than the dog or the tree or the bird or the furniture okay Medium-sized dry goods, as philosophers like to say. Okay, there's different substances around us of which we are part, and they have different essential components. We might use just the same word as this essence. We might always use the word natures. There's one thing to be a human being, another thing to be a dog, another thing to be a tree, etc. However, to say that there are simply different realities having different essences is not enough to explain individual substances, because there's also concrete individuals. Right, so. Why do you need that distinction? Well, because, take Peter, Paul, Andrew, Rebecca, and Sarah, okay? All of them share a same essence. They're all human beings. None of them is more or less human than the other. But they are totally distinct individuals. One of them could die, and the others are alive. One could be born, and the others uh, are not changed. So, you have to explain, when you explain substances, how you have individuals that are distinct, Peter, Paul, James, Andrew, Rebecca, etc., 
and yet they all share a common essence. And that essence is explaining also what the whole is. You take Peter and say, what is that reality? That's a human being. You take the tree and say, what's that reality? That's a tree. It's a different essence. Now, when you start to fill that out, you look at the properties of the thing. Well, a tree has a certain quantity, different than that of a man, different than that of a giraffe. But then there are also different qualities. For example, human beings have reason and free will, which are qualities of the soul. There are different relations. You know, so, for example, you and I were born of our parents, or relations come about because of um, quantities and actions and passions. So, um, you know, there's quality, there's sort of relations of height, you know. The giraffe is taller than the human being. There's actions and passions, meaning things you undergo. Activities and, and, and passivities and habits that are formed. Time and place and position. Position means something like, am I seated down? You know, I'm in this same place, but I could, be see, I could sit down on the floor right now where I am. I'd be in a different position, but I'd be in the same place. Anyway, of these categories, the most important are always, of course, the substance and then the quality, quantity, and relation. The rest kind of derive, arguably, arguably, these here derive from the rest, from, from these, these three. So anyway, the question is, this man Jesus, okay, this man Jesus, he is a concrete individual walking on the shore of Galilee. He has a human nature. He has certain qualities. He's very virtuous. Uh, he has human intelligence and human free will. Uh, he has, sorry, has a certain quantity. Uh, the Shroud of Turin perhaps gives it to us. Who knows? You know, I, I believe, but it's an, it's an interesting question. But in any case, there is some quantity to the man Jesus Christ. Uh, relations, uh, born of Mary, right? Um, uh, taller than Peter, whatever. He has certain actions, walking on water. Passions, undergoing suffering. Habits, you know, preaching. Uh, time and place, right? 2,000 years ago, Galilee, etc. Position sitting in the, bo- in the boat. Right. Where do we try to identify the unity of his human nature with his divine, with the deity? Ah, so you're going to put it here. What's the, what's, what's so, you're saying the unity is in the human nature, the human nature. It's united to the divine nature. Okay. Well, that's in a sense, of course, that's true. Because the nature... We're going to talk about two kinds of union. The two natures are united, but they're united in something. Where's the divinity and humanity? Where are the divine and human natures united? In the concrete individual. Right? So, in Article 1, he's going to talk about I'll come back to your your idea, sister, because he does actually say something similar to you. But in Article One, he's going to say you can't have you can't have identity of the two natures. There's a human nature, and divine nature. So, so where, what, in in what are they united? They're united in the concrete individual. And what does Nestorius think? Sorry, Nestorius, you have an accidental unity. He's going to, in, in Article 6, he's going to talk about different theories of the Incarnation in his own day and age, which try to see the Incarnation as a set of relations or habits between the man Jesus and the Word. And that's really what 
Nestorius does do. I mean, he's diagnosing metaphysically Nestorianism. It's when you think there's a habitual relation, a habitual relation between Jesus' moral acts and the will of the, of the eternal word. Rather than a substantial unity. Unity is in the accidents rather than in the substance. If you have a substantial unity, it's that this concrete individual here, this man Jesus, is the word. So, when you point at the concrete individual Jesus, the person is the person of the Word. So, the, you know, the mystery, what's going to come really dense is this. What does it mean to say that subsistent person there, that concrete individual is the Word? Now, um, going back to the earlier point mentioned, in Question 2, Article 9... He first he distinguishes in question 2, article 9. He says, Union implies the joining of several in some one thing. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point. You, you can try to find the text you want, but uh, I want to basically point out he makes a distinction here. Union implies the joining of some several in one thing, but this can be taken in two ways. In other words, he says that union can be said in two ways. First, in regards to the things united, namely the two natures of Christ. Sister, that was what you were talking about, Maria Pia. That, that you have a union of two things, the human nature and the divine nature. And second, in regard to that in which they are united. Where does the union take place? The union is hypostatic. It takes place in the person. So how do we denote the concrete hypostatic person? According to, If we map that onto the Aristotelian categories, we denote the concrete person as the individual subject, the concrete individual. Well, yes, except substance in us is complicated. Is we can d- distinguish in us between the substance as an individual, you and I are individuals, versus the substance as having a complete human nature. If you say, what is that substance there? Right? What is Sister Mary Dominic? She's a human being. But see, you and I share that. So that's also part of what our substance is. So what we've got to do is say how the Word comes into individual existence as one of us while having a human nature like one of us. It's not that he splits the substance down the middle, but it's that he takes on a human substance, personally. So he's going to be completely like us in all things. We can ascribe, we would say, univocally, human nature to him as we would to us. But we won't say that any of us is the incarnate word. The individual, concrete individual, in this in question, in... in, uh, in this case, the concrete individual is the Son of God. Alright, let's look at question... Let's just try to, um, as it were, to use the in- metaphor from the beginning to, to swim in the water. Um, let's just go ahead and try to read the first article. This is tough stuff. Huh? I mean, this is the kinds of things you read. I'm still reading it and I'm not really sure you know, how much of it I understand. I'm, I, I work through it every year and try to get a little bit more every time. Um, whether the union of the incarnate word took place in the nature so we have the union of the natures but does the union take place in the nature well no because that would be monophysism okay so they quasi quote Council of Chalcedon on the contrary in the Council of Chalcedon it said we confess that in these latter times the only begotten Son of God appeared in two natures without confusion without change without division without separation the distinction of natures not having been taken away by the union so the two natures are united 
they're not confused. I answer that. To make this question clear, we must consider what is nature. Okay. Um, now, it has to be observed that the word nature comes from nativity, meaning to be born, not to in Latin. Hence, this word was used, first of all, to signify the begetting of living beings, which is called birth or sprouting forth. The word natura meaning, as it were, uh, how would you say, nascitura. Afterwards, this word nature was taken to signify the principle of this begetting. And because in living things, the principle of generation is an intrinsic principle. So, for example, you, you, you know, a man and woman give birth to a child, they transmit to that child the nature they themselves have intrinsically. This word nature was further employed to signify any intrinsic principle of motion. So, the philosopher, as you know, the philosopher is always Aristotle, says in Physics 2, Book 2, at the beginning is where he defines what nature is, phusis. That nature is the principle of motion in that which it, uh, it is essentially and not accidentally. That's a fancy way of saying we observe certain things like trees and human beings, dogs. They're moving around and they're doing certain activities. There's some principle which gives them an identity as this kind of thing. We say that's their nature. It's the nature of the dog to chase frisbees. It's the nature of the human person to reason or to take or to try to jog or whatever. You know, there are things that are human activities, canine activities. It's the nature of trees to put out uh, uh, leaves and fruits. Now, this principle is either called nature and sometimes is sometimes form and is and is called nature and sometimes matter. Meaning, in natural realities, they have a form and a matter. And I'm not going to go into the metaphysics of that. I think you've had some metaphysics, but you know, you have a, a determination in things like you have a human nature, and then you have the material component parts like your gallbladder or your esophagus or your heart. And in that, you have the potentiality of matter, the the pure potentiality, the stuff in us that's capable of being changed. You know, so we're all we have this material potentiality in us that makes us alterable physically. And sometimes form is called nature, and sometimes matter. You can talk about both of those as dimensions of nature. We are part of our nature is that we're material beings, and because the end of natural generation. Uh, in that which is generated is the essence of the species, which the definition signifies the essence of the species is called nature. Now here he does something important. He says, um, in that list of categories, that which denotes the, the nature of a thing as... Uh, that which, what, I'm, what I'm calling the nature of reality is also what I'm calling the essence of the reality. So he does this whole genealogy. He says, yeah, I know Aristotle started talking about natures in terms of movement, why things change. But at the end of the day, he's trying to talk about what things are who are subject to change. And what they are is their material form composites in our world as nature as we experience it. And they, we can call this the essence. What's he doing? He's making room to say in Jesus there are two natures or two essences a divine nature and a human nature a divine essence and a human nature and don't give me too much tr trouble he's saying about the fact that I'm letting these words overlap because they're related talk about the essence of something material is to talk about its nature how it behaves uh, typically in and through its various movements and so Boethius defines nature nature is what informs the thing with its specific difference that which makes it that kind of thing it is which perfects the specific definition what's typical of human nature is we have spiritual operations we're animals generically we are animals but we're animals that are rational that have spiritual operations of reason and free will that's what's specific about us that's why we can say 
were rational animals, essentially. Jesus was a rational animal. He had a human nature. He's a rational animal. Now, if we take nature in this way, it's impossible that the union of the incarnate Word took place in the nature. For one thing is made of two or more in three ways. And now he's going to now he's going to about three ways you could have union in a nature. He's basically what he's going to do is he's going to kind of try to plunder Nestorius's uh, Monophysite terrain, where the Monophysites live. He says, okay, let's try to think about what it would mean to say unions take place in the nature. Like there's one nature after the union. Okay, how could that happen? Well, it's just like building a house. First, from two complete things which remain in their perfection. This can only happen with those whose form is composition, order, or figure. As a heap is made out of many stones brought together without any order, but solely with juxtaposition. And a house is made of stones and beams arranged in order and fashioned to a figure. So, you could take the humanity and the divinity, and you could fashion them together the way you get a house from two parts that hold together. What's the problem with that? Neither humanity nor divinity are merely quantitative. You can't just, like, a beam and stones you can put together and juxtapose them as quantities, like physical objects. Humanity is not a physical... We have physicality to us, we have a quantity, but we're not just a quantity. And divinity has no quantity, because it's not physical. So you can't imagine mixing them together that way. That's silly, right? He's just trying to show how absurd it is. And in this way, some said the union was by manner of confusion, which is without order, or by manner of commensuration, which is with order. But this cannot be. First, because neither composition nor order nor figure is a substantial form, but accidental. When you build a house, you create an accidental order of relations. The stone is a different substance than the wood. The wood is a different substance than the roofing. And you put all this stuff together accidentally. They're related to each other by a set of relations. That's why a house is not really a substance for Aristotle. It's, a, it's an artistic configuration of substances. An automobile is not a substance. It's, you take metal and plastic and gasoline, you put them together in a certain order of relations. Right? But you know that we don't say houses and the gasoline, houses and cars die, or we speak it metaphorically. My car is dead. Right? Because it won't move. But it's not really dead. It's just there's some brokenness in the relations. You take it to a repairman and he can fix it. And there's no accidental unity between the divinity and humanity of Christ. It's not there, there's substantial unity. And he says, I'm going to disprove that it can be accidental later on in Article 6 when he argues against Nestorius. That would be Nestorianism. Secondly, because thereby we should have an absolute unity... Uh, not have an absolute unity, but relative only, for there remain several things actually. Thirdly, because the form of such is not a nature, but an art. You know, a house is not a, a new natural entity. It's an artistic reality created by man, where you take different natural substances and put them together. Secondly, one thing is made up of several things, perfect but changed, as in a mixture made up of elements. Now think about baking a cake. You put together eggs and flour and butter and sugar and you stir it up and you get a new substance. Is that the incarnation? You put humanity and divinity together like breaking two eggs. You mix them together and you get the God-man. Right? No. Somebody thought this was, uh, we could talk about it as a combination. This cannot be because the divine nature is altogether immutable, as we've said. So it cannot be changed into something else because it's incorruptible. Nor can anything else be changed into it, for it cannot be generated. 
Secondly, because what is mixed is of the same species with none of the elements. For flesh differs in species from any of its elements. So if you mix eggs and butter into each other and you make a cake, you don't have eggs and butter anymore. You have a tertium quid, a third thing. And if you mix together humanity and divinity, like a cake mix, you're not going to have God or man. You're going to have Frankenstein. Thus Christ would not be of the same nature with his father nor his mother. And that would get us nowhere. Thirdly, because there can be no mingling of things widely apart. For the species of one of them is absorbed. And this is the image from the Monophysites. He takes it. You put a drop of water in a flagon of wine. The water does so give the absorption of the humanity into the divinity. And hence, since the, human, the divine nature infinitely exceeds the human nature, there would be no mixture, but the divine nature alone would remain. Now that's really a classical argument. If you say there's only one nature after the union, you absorb the, the humanity into the divinity. There's nothing left. These are arguments, you know, life doesn't depend on whether you get all these the first time you go through, but it's just interesting to see him going through and kind of knocking down the idea of a, a mixture of the, of the natures or a union in the natures and it kind of chasing that up and saying, well, what would that entail? Now, that does happen. And he gives examples from our world. And what he's showing is you can try to project that onto the incarnation, but you're just projecting a human way of thinking onto a divine mystery. And it's not going to get you anywhere. It's going to make you, you're going to get confused. But it does help you explain why human beings get confused about this. They project more mundane examples like building a house or baking a cake onto the, the, the union of God and man in the incarnation. They don't allow for it to be a mystery that's different than what we ordinarily experience. Um, what's his third example? He talks about, I'll just talk about it quick, quickly, a union in which imperfect parts contribute to a greater whole. Here he gives the example of a body and soul united in one person. So you have the union of the body and soul in one person. But the incarnation, in the incarnation, each nature has its specific perfection. Right? It's not like God and man come together to make some third thing that's more perfect, the way a body and soul come together to make the whole, which is a human being. No. The deity cannot be the form of humanity without changing in the species of the latter. You don't have God changing into man. You don't have man changing into God. But if you had a union of the two into some more perfect thing, again, you'd get rid of divinity and humanity into some third thing. Okay, so it's absurd. What's at stake in this question? Really, deep down? Well, this. The incarnation does not imply that God undergoes a change or alteration in Himself in order to become man. God does not take into Himself a history in which from all eternity, as it were, God needs creation to be God. And He needs to mix Himself with us to perfect Himself. Okay. Creation is not part of the narrative of God's triune life. There are a lot of people who think that nowadays. It's very common after Hegel. So this article, may, you know, it's full of scholastic reasoning, but it's a great remedy, it's a great purification for us in a world where people want to say in some ways that God who suffers in Himself, who undergoes change in Himself, sort of takes on our human nature to perfect Himself or to allow His own history to develop or be enriched. Aquinas is saying no. There's no tertium quid. There's no third thing of God. It's divine nature mixing with human nature and human history to become some greater, perfect, more complete whole. That's not what's going on. On the contrary, God became incarnate freely and by uncompelled love. 
So, the triune God remains eternally God, and the nature of God, the divine essence, does not undergo alteration in the form of change or suffering in becoming human. The union cannot be the introduction of humanity into God's own nature, as if God was emptying himself of his very deity in order to come close to us. Rather, God coming close to us brings to us the presence of his deity. He becomes human to unite us with him. If he got rid of his divinity in becoming human, how would he save us? The whole point is for us to come close to his divinity. On the contrary, if he's not really human, how is it humanity that's saved? Right? So the integrality, the integrity of his humanity and his divinity is very important for our salvation. So let's turn to Article 2. And talk about, now he's saying, saying, the union of the natures takes place in the person. There's two natures that are united to each other. What are they united in? Not the nature of the divine, not in the natures, but the two natures are united in the person of Christ. So now we're going to start focusing on this mystery of the concrete subject, the concrete individual, Jesus. On the contrary, we read in the symbol... So the question is, whether the union of the incarnate word took place in the person... Okay, now here's all the lights should go off, right? We know that that's the case, okay. We read in the Synod of Chalcedon, we confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is not parted or divided into two persons. So having attacked Monophysitism in the first one, he's now going to, you know, go after Nestorianism. We confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son and Word of God. Therefore, the union took place in the person. And here's where he's really following Cyril. Very self-consciously. I answer that person has a different meaning from nature. For nature, as has been said, designates the specific essence which is signified by the definition. Defin- what you define what something is. That's a canine, that's a tree, that's a human being. Okay. But if nothing was found to be added to what belongs to the notion of the species, there would be no need to distinguish the nature from the suppositum of the nature. In other words, if talking about what a substance is was just defining it, then you wouldn't need to talk about singulars. You talk about what's the substance of Peter? Well, human being a human being. But that's crazy because if Peter dies, humanity doesn't die with him. Nor can Peter or Socrates say, I am humanity. Right? The suppositum of nature, now suppositum here is a word used for also synonymously with hypostasis, individual. There are shades, different shades of meaning that are important between these different words. They have different functions, but we're not going to try to identify all those right now. Just the point being the suppositum, it's more of a logical term, but it's that which denotes the singular, it's individual. So we distinguish the nature from the suppositum of the nature, which, he says, is the individual subsisting in this nature. Because every individual subsisting in a nature would be altogether one with its nature. Alright, that's why I just said you can't say Socrates, this this subsistent man here is humanity. Now in certain subsisting things, we happen to find what does not belong to the notion of the species, that's say accidents and individuating principles. 
which appears chiefly in such as are composed of matter and form. So you and I are matter form composites. We have we are substances, we're human beings, we have certain properties, and each of us has an individual matter, our body. Hence, in such as these, the nature and the suppositum really differ. In all of us, there's a real distinction between our nature and our individuality. That doesn't exist in God. Because God just is His divine essence. He's simple the way we aren't. Not indeed as if they're wholly separate. You know, you don't wake up in the morning and, you know, the individuality's on one side of the bed and then your essence on the other. You say, well, let's see, we've got we to work together here. No. Okay, that's silly. Uh, they're distinct but never separate, of course. Uh, but because the suppositum includes the nature, right? If you say, what is Peter? Well, Peter is a human being. Part of what the definition of Peter is, is his nature. And in addition to certain other things outside the notion of the species, he means by that, you know, each of us has our own material uh, uniqueness that comes from the matter itself. Hence the suppositum is taken to be a whole which has the nature as its formal part to perfect it and consequently in such as are composed of matter form the nature is not predicated of the suppositum for we do not say that this man is his manhood but if there is a thing in which there is nothing outside the species of its nature as in God, or its nature as in God the suppositum and the nature are not really distinct in it but only in our way of thinking. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, this way he just said there. What is said of a suppositum is to be applied to a person in rational or intellectual creatures, for a person is nothing other than, and here he defines person, an individual substance of rational nature, according to Boethius. Famous definition. So I'm circling here a little bit around personhood, but what is a person? He says the person is both these things. A person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Right? You need the individuality, the concrete individual substance, the concrete individual substance having a certain essence or, or nature. What kind of nature? Rational nature. What's a person? A human person. A concrete individual substance having a rational nature. So, if we talk about the person of Christ, we're going to, have to talk about both these dimensions. That he's an individual, a concrete individual substance having a human rational nature. What's also strange about Christ is that he has two natures. He's not just a concrete individual substance of a rational nature. He's also God. He has a divine nature. Therefore, whatever adheres to a person is united to it in person, whether it belongs to its nature or not. Hence, if the human nature is not united to God in the, in the, in the word, in person is no wise united to Him. And thus, belief in the Incarnation is altogether done away with, and Christian faith wholly overturned. Therefore, inasmuch as the Word has a human nature united to Him, which does not belong to His divine nature, it follows that the union took place in the person of the Word, and not in the nature. He's just saying, the only way you can have... Okay, he's, he's already excluded that the union is a union of two natures fused together. He's also saying the union can't just be accidental. So you see our choices are narrow at this point. The union is substantial, but it's not essential. The union is in the concrete individual. The concrete individual is the suppositum, the person. Now, 
you know, you say, well, uh, is he there proving, therefore, sort of how the incarnation took place? No. He's, he's sort of taking our ordinary understanding of how reality is divided up. And he's taking what we know to be the mystery from dogma, and he's sort of mapping them onto each other, saying, okay, we can kind of see how this, he's moving toward where the mystery is. It's almost negative. He's excluding certain things. The unity can't be a, a fusion of essences. The unity can't just merely be accidental. We know that we say the union is hypostatic. What's that mean? Well, in terms of our ordinary understanding of human beings, that means there's a subs- the concrete substantial individual is where the union takes is, is the union is in the concrete substantial individual, and that's and the concrete substantial individual in the question here is the word, the person, the word. So the union is taking place in his person. Does that mean it's not mysterious? No, it's utterly mysterious. We haven't explained it. We've simply kind of identified where to look. And now we're going to, you know, he's going to spend lots of articles peering more deeply into that mystery. What does it mean to say the union took place in the person? Um, now, I need to read the, I want to read the objections. The, the, the responses to the objections because they're important in this article. First of all, reply to objection one. I'm not going to read the, the objections themselves. It's just a quest, adding some more theology here. Although in God, nature and person are not really distinct, yet they have distinct meanings, inasmuch as person signifies after the manner of something subsisting. Now, here Aquinas is, he's talking about suppositum, individual, and person in similar ways. Now he's going to add two more words. Subsistence and hypostasis. These things all overlap in the incarnation. The suppositum, the concrete person. The suppositum is the concrete individual. He is the person. He's the hypostasis. And he's the subsisting reality. That which subsists concretely. What subsists concretely in this room? Right? Us ten people. Ten subsistent individuals. So what is a person a subsist something uh, signifies person signifies the reality after the manner of its subsisting. Nature signifies that in which it subsists or what it is in its nature, you know, in its specific form. So in Christ it's again those two dimensions. What subsists who subsists in Christ? The Word incarnate. Uh, in what does he subsist, or as what, as a man? This man is the Word incarnate, subsistent. Uh, so we can say the nature of Jesus is human nature, subsists in the Word. Uh, let's read reply objection two. Now the, pri- the objection here is that, um, well, I'll read it. Christ's human nature has no less dignity than ours, but personality belongs to the dignity of human uh, nature. So, our human nature has its proper personality, the personality of Paul or Rebecca or whoever. Much more reason was there that Christ should have his proper personality, right? If, if Christ is a divine person and doesn't... Ha- Christ's not a human person, but doesn't that mean his human nature is truncated? Doesn't, isn't his human nature massacred by the fact that it doesn't have its own hu- flourishing human personality? And he says here, personality pertains of necessity to the dignity of a thing and to its perfection so far as it pertains to the dignity and perfection of that thing to exist by itself. 
So he says there is a certain kind of personal dignity that you have an autonomy in being and then you flourish in your spiritual life through your own acts of freedom and thought. Now it's a greater dignity to exist in something nobler than oneself than to exist by oneself. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So does grace, you know, does grace massacre our human dignity or does it help our dignity flourish? Right? Hence the human nature of Christ has a greater dignity than ours from this very fact that in us, being existent by itself, it, we each have our human nature, each has its own personality. You know, the human nature of Paul has its own personality. And any of you and I and so forth. But in Christ, it exists in the person of the Word. Human nature exists in the person of the Word. Thus, to perfect the species belongs to the dignity of a form, a human nature. Yet the sensitive part in man on account of his union with the nobler form which perfects the species is more noble than in brutes, where it is itself the form which perfects. So he gives this example. Say the opera. Right? Animals bark and cry, but they don't sing arias. So the sensitive life of man undergoes a higher spiritual spiritualization through art. We, we, we in, like the liturgy, we ennoble uh, our voices and our capacity for sensation through spiritual actions. Speech, singing, worship, art. Right? It ennobles the animal in us. We're spiritual animals. Animality is spiritual in us. Um, and so he says, analogously, in Christ, humanity is is deified or divinized because the, it's those are the human. It's the human personal actions. It's the human spiritual actions of thought and willing are the actions of the incarnate Word. So it's not destroying His humanity. It's rather incorporating our humanity into a great nobility and dignity. It could only have because of the incarnation that humanity be united to the incarnate Word and be expressive of the person of God, the Son, the Son of God. God the Son expresses personality, His divine personhood in and through human actions. Alright, we'll skip the third one. Um, what's at stake in this question concretely? Alright, I'm, I'm making the kind of suggestion at the end of these articles that there's something, there are important realities that hinge on this that are of very concrete, uh, practical character. Think about your experience of another human being. Uh, say friendship or sisterhood or fraternal life or, okay you have a natural experience of an ordinary experience of a person that's both sensible meaning through the sensations of hearing and seeing uh, and intellectual and voluntary in and through her or his speech acts gestures facial expressions uh, characteristic actions you come to know the deeper heart and mind of the person you begin to understand who the person is. Right, so the person, each of us, is manifest the other through our sensible expressions. But in and through the sensible expressions, we have contact with the substance of the person. We know something about who the person is, metaphysically. See, our, our pet dog doesn't have that. You don't have a pet dog, thank God. Neither do I. But I mean... I don't, I don't believe in animals in religious life. Do you have animals in your monasteries? I don't, I'm not for it. All right, well, listen, let's not argue about that. Um, um, but if you have a pet dog, or if you had a pet dog, or whatever, you know, you get the idea. The dog appreciates you, you know, it has wonderful loyalty, but it doesn't understand, you know, your personality structure. It can maybe read your emotions a little bit, certainly anger or friendliness. 
but it doesn't have a deep insight, an intellectual insight into your person, right? As where for us, these animal interactions are spiritualized. We come to understand we're engaging with a person who manifests himself or herself, as it were, at the periphery of his being through sensitive actions, through gestures and words and speech acts and such. Well, something analogous happens in the Incarnation. Except here, the being we're encountering, the person we're encountering, through his speech acts and his gestures and words, is God, the Son. God the Son speaks. God the Son suffers. God the Son touches. God the Son walks. And on the periphery of his being, so to speak, in his sensitive actions, we're invited to gaze intellectually, as we would on any human person normally, into the depth of the reality as it manifests itself to us on its, in its periphery. However, in this case, we're aided by the grace of faith, not only to see personhood, but to see into divine personhood. Divine personhood that's really present there because of the Incarnation. He says when we read the Gospels, we are invited to gaze, as it were, into the person of the Son who manifests Himself to us through His human actions. My point being that it's very concrete what this article is about ultimately. It's about the fact that when you look in faith upon Christ as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, you see into the person of the Word through His human actions in which He manifests Himself to us. What is present concretely is the Incarnation, is the Incarnate Word. And he goes on in Article 3 to say the union is hypostatic. Now he's just shoring up what he said earlier. Um, Why don't we finish with this? Whether the union of the Word incarnate took place in the suppositum or hypostasis. So see, he said, does it take place in the person? Now he says, what's the person? The person is the concrete suppositum, the concrete individual. Now he's going to equate that with a hypostasis. What is all this? The subsistent individual, right? He who subsists in a given human nature. John Damascene says, this is on the contrary. John John Damascene says, in our Lord Jesus Christ we acknowledge two natures and one hypostasis. Well, everybody before him said it too. Anyway, I answer that. Some did not know the relation of hypostasis to person, although granting that there is but one person in Christ, held nevertheless there is, uh, that there is one hypostasis of God and another of man. And hence that the union took place in the person and not in the hypostasis. Well, he's talking about some of the language of Nestorians. And I think Nestorius himself sometimes talks about two hypostases and one prosopon. In which he also talks sometimes about two prosopoi and one prosopon. But Nestorius said the idea that it's like two concrete substances or subsisting realities, the man and the logos. And they have one, prosopon can also mean in Greek sometimes appearance. They have one phenomenology. They have one kind of phenomenological appearance. Now this, for three reasons, is clearly erroneous. First, because person only adds to hypostasis a determinate nature. So when you say something's a hypostasis, you say it's a singular subsisting entity. When you say it's a person, you say it's a singular subsisting entity of a given kind, having a rational nature, being a rational animal. First, because person adds to hypostasis a determinate nature, that's say rational according to Boethius. A person is an individual substance of a rational nature. And hence, it is the same to attribute to the human nature in Christ a proper hypostasis 
and a proper person. That's kind of commonsensical deep down. He's just saying we talk about a person, you're talking about hypostasis, we talk about hypostasis, you're talking about a person. And the Holy Fathers, seeing this, condemned both in the fifth council held at Constantinople saying, this is a later council we didn't talk about, if anyone seeks to introduce into the mystery of the Incarnation two subsistences or two persons, let him be anathema. For by the Incarnation of one of the Holy Trinity, God the Word, the Holy Trinity, received no augment of person or subsistence. Now subsistence is the same as the subsisting thing, which is proper to hypostasis. Secondly, because if it is granted that a person adds to hypostasis something in which the union can take place, this something is nothing else than a property pertaining to dignity, according as it is said by some that a person is a hypostasis distinguished by a property pertaining to dignity. If, therefore, the union took place in the person and not in the hypostasis, it follows that the union only took place in regard to some dignity, a kind of moral union. That would be, what he's saying is, you can have the hypostasis, Jesus, the man, Jesus, is one substance, subsisting thing, and the word, another subsisting thing. And then you could have the substance that you could have the unity be one that's moral unity of habitual relations which would add dignity to the man Jesus and this is what Cyril of Alexandria with the approval of the council of Ephesus condemned in these terms if anyone after uniting divides the subsistences or hypostases of the one Christ only joining them in a unity of dignity or authority or power and not rather in a concourse of natural union let him be anathema we read that yesterday. And we talked about the ambiguity of that notion of a natural union. Does that mean union of the two natures? No. Right? But what does it mean? Calcium sorts that out later. Thirdly, because uh, to the hypostasis alone are attributed the operations and the natural properties and whatever belongs to the nature in the concrete. For we say that this man here, Paul, reasons and is risible and is a rational animal. So likewise, this man is said to be a suppositum because he underlies suponitur, whatever belongs to man and receives its predication. Therefore, if there is any hypostasis in Christ besides the hypostasis of the Word, it follows that some other than the Word, example that he... Uh, sorry. It follows that whatever pertains to man is verified of someone other than the Word. That he was born of a virgin, suffered, and was crucified, and was buried. But it's the Word who was born of the virgin, suffered, and was crucified and buried. So the Council of Ephesus says, If anyone ascribes to two persons or subsistences such words as are in the evangelical and apostolic scriptures, or have been a set of Christ by the saints, or by himself, of himself, etc., etc., let him be anathema. There's no two persons, no two hypostases. Now, you know, I'm going to stop there and ask if you guys have any questions, but I, I think, it, even though there's a lot of technical things going on, it's also important to realize, so far, what he's done there. I mean, you can read more, and there's a lot, I mean, there's almost an infinite amount you can kind of reflect on in, in, the, in these questions, but in some ways it's not utterly ambitious what he's doing. It is not utterly ambitious. He's trying to propose to us what we must not believe about the Incarnation. That it's a fusion of natures or that there's a duality of substances. So, there's one substance, Jesus Christ, who is the Incarnate Word. 
that one substance is not a fusion of the divine and human natures, but is a union of the divine and human natures. That union is substantial because there's only one substance, one being. So where does that union take place? It can't be a fusion of the natures. It can't just be accidental. So it takes place in the concrete individual. A concrete individual of a rational human nature is a person. So the union is in the person. Which we could also call the hypostasis. Now, that raises, of course, interesting questions. How can a divine person subsist in human nature and unite human nature to his divine nature? What is the relation between the human nature and the divine nature? And we'll probably talk a little bit about that, reading some articles together this afternoon. So this is one hour on the metaphysics incarnation. We're going to do maybe a little bit of a seminar. And then tomorrow we'll move on to the humanity of Jesus, the grace and humanity of Jesus. And how his human nature, how he acts in his human nature in a way that is in harmony with his, the will of his divine nature. How, how is there a harmony between what Jesus does as man and what Jesus wills with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God? Any questions? You can save them for this evening, right? No? Yeah. Major idea, principle of action. Yeah. So, yeah. The Christ just this individual. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then the question would be how the two uh, cooperate. It's a problem of theandric action. No, that's true, and he's going to go there. He's going to go there in question uh, 16 and 17. He's going to talk about how these two natures, which are principles of operation, uh, concretely cooperate with one another. It's uh, um, question 17 and 18, I believe. No, question 18. And then he looks at it in night. Yeah, question 18 and 19. Unity of Christ's operation, particularly in question 19. Nature. Well, because Aristotle, well, it's it's an Aristotelian idea, but philosophically you have um, two modes of being an act. For Aristotle, we can say you have you know first act and second act. This is Aquinas too, following me interpreting Aristotle. And first act is the act of the substance having a given nature, and second act is the operations of substance. So you have to first be constituted in a human nature to then act as a human person. Now this is substantial. First act is substantial. And second act is uh, accidental. Meaning, I'm born a baby and I'm capable in potency of learning to play the cello. And then when I get five years old, my perfectionist parents who want me to get into Harvard buy me a cello and make me take cello lessons. And they you know, won't let me eat dessert unless I play the cello well or at least play it so I can write about it in my Harvard application. And then I start then I develop start developing the operations of playing the cello, which are properties that are accidental because if I stop playing the cello when I turn fifteen and start playing the electric guitar, they can't I don't cease to exist, right? 
That's not a real. That's not an example from real life. That's a. That's fantastical. I did just hear a cello player who who gave up her career as a professional cello player to become a doctor. And I thought all that worked. She was a professional celloist, which is like a whole lifetime work. And now she's going to medical school. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with people. Anyway. Alright, shall we finish? Our help is in the name of the Lord. Any, any professional?